mindfulness mode. If you are fearful, just know that what the biggest thing you need to overcome is. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to the show. Today, we are going to be talking to someone who is an architect, and I've not interviewed an architect before, so I think this is going to be very, very interesting to find out how architecture and all the work he does in this field dovetails into mindfulness because I'm sure being a creative you know being mindful is a big part of it but we're gonna find out all about this he's a multi-talented serial entrepreneur like I said he's an architect a builder he's a lecturer he's also a podcaster too so we're going to find out so much more but I'm here today with Lance Psycho Lance are you in mindfulness mode today I am in mindfulness mode today. Yep, 100%. I started out my day with my typical routine, waking up uh, before the crack of dawn, stretching, praying the rosary, uh, getting my coffee on, getting my getting really emphasizing those golden hours in the morning before everybody else gets up and gets on with their day. Cool. So what does mindfulness mean to you in your life? That means being present 100 percent i i think one of the biggest uh, one of the phrases i there's multiple quotes that i love of, of that people say some of them are from kanye west believe it or not um this one is not and one of them that is uh, you know the the, uh, the future the future is unknown the past is past and the present is a present and i really try to live in that kind of moment yeah that's awesome so way back when you started working on your degree your building construction technology degree is that something that you just always wanted to do and you felt it was completely right for you? Or did you have to kind of move into that space? No, it felt like that's where the that's where the spirit was moving me 100%. Yeah, I had uh, I tried farming with my dad for one summer. I grew up in between a cattle ranch and a, and a sugar beet farm in northwestern North Dakota. And when I was 13, I tried I tried to do that. I tried to irrigate sugar beets with my dad and it was a it was a horrible mess. Uh, not that I was adverse to hard work. It was, I didn't get along with my father that much. I, it did seem very unfulfilling to me. It sort of seemed like dead end. I mean, God bless him for, for working and ma- making the boss farm survive for that long. But you could see that like, as far as entrepreneurship goes and trying to pull yourself out of lower middle class areas, that's not going to be the way forward. So I lasted about a week and he said, well, and I said, Hey, this is really, really isn't working for me. Like my best friend, Chris will happily take my my job here uh, and he said well you got to do something and I go you know I'm here to raise you know kids with a strong Protestant work ethic and you know the whole Americana thing and I said okay well how about how about I'll call up your friend Bruce your best friend one of your best friends and ask him who, who he was a general contractor I said I'll call him up and I'll see if I can work with him I, I've always wanted to try construction I had always grown up with grandma making sure that I had all the Legos all the sketchbooks was constantly creating and drawing and, and attempting to build things, just had that prowess about me. So I called up Bruce and he said, and I said, hey, I, I, I can't work with my dad anymore. Do you, I'll do anything. Uh, you know, I, I'll do anything on the job site just, just to be there. And, you know, what do you pay? And you have any openings? And he goes, sure, you can be my gopher. I go, cool. What, what's that? And he goes, well, you can go for, you'll go for this. You go for that. When you're done going for things, then, then you can get up on the roof and learn how to roof. So that so I, I jumped into that and it was very, very brutally hard work. I mean, you're getting up at like four or five, having the roofs torn off. You know, we would do one a day. We'd tear it, have it tore off by about mid a.m., have it put back on by 3 p.m. It was it was dirty. It was hot. It was dusty. 
asphalt shingles are very, very heavy, but I just loved every single minute of it. I loved wow. the camaraderie. I loved all, you know, just even like the, the cat calling and stuff like that. And I just, the culture of the whole thing. And, and I was a, a place of presence for sure. I mean, you had to pay attention. Otherwise you're going to fall off the roof. You're working with sharp knives and uh, nail guns and all of that. And it's dangerous. And uh, that's, that's what just, so, you know, then there was an epiphany that, that, Bruce basically put in my head that summer and we're about halfway through the summer. And he says, he leans to me and he says, how much do you think I charge my customers for one hour of your labor? And I go, well, you paid me seven twenty five, seven twenty five, obviously. And he laughed and laughed. And, oh, why, why is that so funny? And he explained how the multiplier works and you know what he said, no, typically I'm charging, you know, two to three to maybe even four times what I'm paying you to them. And I go, why would you do that? He explained profit, he explained overhead, and it all clicked for me. And the, it was a huge difference between my dad and Bruce. Mm -hmm. And what Bruce, Bruce was not rich, but he was definitely free from a, the anxiety of worrying about money. And I thought, man, if you're free from the anxiety of worrying about money, what does that do for your mind? Like that, that, that seems like freedom to me. It just seems like we would be taken out of this prison you know, worrying about money and worrying about asking mom and dad for money. I hated, I hated it. And so I was like, man, I should, I should be like Bruce. Okay. Next summer I'm going to, you know, learn concrete. Summer after that, I'm going to learn framing. And every single summer, all the way up until I went to Wapaton for building construction tech, I would try to learn a different trade to set myself free in that kind of way. Wow. That's really fascinating. I grew up on a farm too, and we had sugar beets as well. So I really resonate. Oh, no kidding. With, yeah. I really where, 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 where was yours at? I know that I'm not supposed to interview you, but I'm so curious. Yeah. In Ontario, Canada. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sugar beets. Yeah. So the irrigation, the same kind of way. So hard. And the mosquitoes up there are probably terrible too. Uh, yeah. And we had to do, uh, we had to hold the sugar beets. Did you ever have to do that? Well, we, that was the, one of the things we didn't have to do was that is because we did have migrant workers that would come up from, from Mexico yeah. on a visa, on a work visa. But the irrigation was all us. And so, you know, waking up every two or three hours was just, it was just, it was just not fulfilling. I just really detested it. And it was hilarious. Is like that. That's not. Doesn't mean I'm adverse to farming. I have a nonprofit that's Longmont Community Garden. So like I grow my. I try to grow as much food as I can for myself. I love earthing. You know, grounding, yeah. being with the earth and stuff like that. Yeah, so. yeah. And you have six kids. So did you decide that you wanted to have a, a big family, lots of children? Then uh, four. Oh, you have so four. I actually. Okay. I, yeah, it's uh, two stepchildren, two bio, two biologicals. Uh, you know, I didn't have in, if, if I could go back in time and yeah. I could redo everything, if yeah. that was, was probably one of the things I would do is I would actually try to have more children than even, even the two and the, the plus two. Yeah. Uh, so, but that's hindsight's 2020. I can't do that now. I'm 40 years old. Like that, that sale has that, you know, it, it, that ship has sailed and, and, and everything. Yeah. But I do, I do, I do and did love those kind of giant family vacations and having that many children, especially when they were before the teen years hit, they yeah. were so well, they were actually so well behaved. We would get compliments almost every single time we were out in public because I mean, in, in America, for sure, it's like, you know, now, now families are maybe, I think it's like an average of 1.8 children, right? So we're sort of in that, that decline as far as the population goes. So to see a family of four children plus a mom, so a total, a whole family of six, 
was a lot for people to take in. Yeah. Uh, it was just kind of, I, I, I noticed it right away. I was like, wow, we are kind of like celebrities walking around. So uh, it was a beautiful experience. I, I wouldn't redo it in any other way. Um, I, I loved every part of that. In fact, what I really want now is I, I, like I'm 40 years old and I would love, my, my children are, the two bios are uh, 14 and 19. So soon enough, I mean, you could potentially be talking to, to Grandpa Lance. And uh, after their confirmations, one of the things I wrote them both very personal letters and said, hey, one of the things I wish my mom and dad would have told me and or at least had a backbone, like tried to be the sort of backbone that I want to be for them in a different way was I wish they would have reassured me that if I wanted to have as many children as possible, that they would they would be there for me physically, monetarily, spiritually in that sort of way and, and, and help support them in their budding families. So I hope they'll, I mean, it's, that's like, it's a 14 and 19 year old even care about what dad says in that regard. No, but I'm, I still said it. If they have it, they know it. Maybe when they get to that age, they'll, they'll take it seriously. But I, I would love to be surrounded later on in life with as many grandkids as possible. So what do you think some of the secrets were that you were able to, uh, have this family and everybody thought, wow, look at how well behaved everybody is. And this just looks like the model family. Is there an element of mindfulness do you think that you use to raise your family? Yeah, we were mind, we were, we were not fearful. We were, we didn't exactly. So we didn't worry about that future part, even though all the statistics pointed against us in that sort of way of blending the families and everything. We, we tried our best and uh, we just, we moved forward in that kind of way. I mean, we didn't worry about the past, right? Because we were okay, okay with blending into the present mm -hmm. and, and living in that sort of arena. I think that was the mindful part of it is we just had to be brave. Yeah. Yeah. I know you do lectures at the University of Boulder. When you first started doing that, were you pretty nervous and on edge or is that something that you've always just really embraced and felt comfortable with? So I thought I had got over the fear of public speaking by the time I had got to the University of Colorado Boulder in 2013 and was a paid and was and still is a paid lecturer there. But the, that first semester was pretty nerve wracking. Uh, I will admit that I still got the nerves when I got up there because I hadn't presented that material to that anybody in that kind of a public arena. Mm -hmm. And then, but, you know, by the second time around, it was easier. And by the third time around, when you teach a course, if anybody is also a lecturer, I know, I know, or teacher, I know people, especially at the higher ed 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 education level, m many of my colleagues up at North Dakota State, even I talk to this, tell them about this a lot of time is that, you know, 50, you know, first time you teach a course, 50% of it, you get it right. 75% in the second time around. Third time you're at 95. And then you're just tweaking and honing in on that, you know, as, as you move forward. But I had thought I had got over that fear because mm -hmm. when I was in college at North Dakota State uh, between 2003 and 2008, I wasn't a good public speaker. I didn't feel comfortable saying what I thought I had and knew in, in my head. And part of it is just owning all the material, right? After you master the material, you should just be able to pontificate about it probably yeah. you know, in, a, in a nice, concise way. And uh, there was this gentleman, his name is Justin Miedema. He was a fellow student of you know with me with me when i was going to school there his he was not a good architect but he was an excellent speaker and he was such a powerful speaker he proved to me that if you are if your speaking skills your speaking skills can make up 
for a talent maybe you don't have and you can still sell the idea and you can still maneuver professionally. So I made it a point to speak publicly as many times as I could and really lean into being a good orator. And by the end of my academic career in North Dakota State, I, that's where I'm, that's what I'm getting at is like, I thought I had, I thought I was done being nervous. So you fast forward to now in 2023, when I give lectures, uh, I, I, you know, whether it's in public or a podcast interview like this, the nerves are finally gone, but it took probably way more than the 10,000 hours that you hear about to master things. For me, it was probably like 20 or 30,000 before I finally, no more nerves. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. Your company that you co-founded is F9 Productions. You co-founded it in 2009 with your business partner, Alex Gore. What made that company different from any other architectural firm? Oh, thank you for asking that question. We were born out of the Great Recession because of uh, the employers that let Alex and I down. Without naming names, Alex went to New York City and worked for a very, very prominent, world-class, world-famous architect who just concentrated on a very select kind of work for like the 0.01% of society. I went out to Boulder and worked for architect, young architects of the, of the year nationally, very prominent people as well, small boutique firm, same problem. They catered towards a very small segment of the society and the kind of work that architects could do. Because architects could do a multitude of things, right? I mean, it's like, I think the, sky's, the sky is literally the limit, right? Skyscrapers and stuff like that. So when we got laid off for them, from them, from both those firms respectively during the Great Recession, we took a hard look at what, like, what were they doing wrong? We got to do the opposite of that. And we were sort of forced into starting the firm because 50% of people that were working in the architectural engineering and construction community were laid off during the great recession. We actually, our sector actually got hit the most compared to other sectors of, of society. Like the tech sector was still crushing. Um, you know, a lot of those things were, were doing just fine. And so we said, okay, we are not getting hired by anybody. Basically we need to find our own work. And so we did, I was able to do that. Um, pretty easily Alex was able to do that once he once he came down and joined forces with me and so we we thought like what is the what is the opposite of what the firms we did that we were working for that got laid off and a lot of it starts with like a fundamental shakedown of the whole of the whole system is like okay we we don't have a lot of built work right now in fact we had none when we first were trying to get our first clients and everything like that so that's where the name F9 Productions comes from is they are we used to uh, the software we would use to create the renderings, the photorealistic renderings, uh, to make it look like we had built work. The hotkey in the keyboard is F9, so every all we had was F9 productions of those photorealistic renderings. So we started assembling that there, and then we started looking at what kind of a how can we come in? We're going to have to be the low to medium bid. There's no way we can be the high bid right now if we don't have repeat clients, referrals, and all of that. But how do we still maintain profit and, and feed ourselves being the low to medium bid? So what we did is we, we took a look at a template for ourselves. We used Revit architecture to create all of our drawings software. And we created Revit Rocketship, 
um, and the template in the software system for, for all of that. And basically, it, would, it made us like twice as fast as or three times as fast as the other guys. Because when we're drawing a, a wall and plan, it's extruding it in 3D. It's sort of recreating all of the other drawings for us as, as, we, as we go. That, that what I'd say is the, the fundamental thing that we did. Um, and then the third thing is, is we advertise on the internet. We actually advertise. Like architects, we were one of the first people in Colorado to actually fully embrace getting a Google business listing up, advertising with Google AdWords, getting on thumbtack.com, and, and doing some innovative things to try to get in the media in, in that sort of way. Just really embracing like the business side of architecture, which kind of probably sounds simple to the audience here. They're like, well, yeah, as an architecture of business, not to most architects. Right, right. Yeah, there, <clears throat> a lot of firms were slow to advertise on Google and to do that kind of advertising. You have your podcast, Inside the Firm Podcast, and we can find it at insidethefirmpodcast.com or lots of other places where you listen to podcasts as well. And I know you have over 400 episodes. What have you learned about podcasting that has caused your podcast to be so successful and and obviously self-sustaining networking number one that's the biggest thing right so like when we launched the inside the firm podcast we had actually alex and i had it was our technically our second podcast first podcast is what's called uh driving to work and it was kind of just a fun me and al would be driving go lecture at cu boulder together because we used to lecture together and we would always have these very interesting conversations talking about like socio-political things architecture design just family whatever we started recording those and that's where we learned how to just podcast and have a cadence and have an outline and, and topics to talk about uploaded to the rss feeds and all of that it was a really good trial run because then when we ended up launching inside the firm podcast we kind of figured out the formula and then for people who don't know but or want to start their own, there's the formula should be you should probably have like maybe five to ten episodes banked and they are ready to go. So you have a backlog. Um, but the but the biggest thing to make sure that they're successful is if you can network with other podcasters and get on their show and vice versa, have them on your show and then sharing is caring and people hear about you in that sort of way. I think that's 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 probably the biggest lesson that we learned is how important it is to then if you do become one of those voices like we are in the architecture community as far as podcasting goes, like I'm really good friends with with the big guys, uh, Enoch Sears, Mark LePage, and now we're in some mastermind groups with them to try to figure out, you know, uh, content strategies, how to get bigger and, and all of those sort of things. And then consistency, like consistency is so huge for just everything, right, which kind of is you know, on the lines of mindfulness, like you are consistent with whatever you're trying to build or make happen, right? Like if you weren't consistent, if you started to build a house and you're like, well, I, I'm a, I come on Mondays, maybe Thursdays, like how long is it going to take to build that house forever? Right. Yeah. Versus I'm there every single day, crushing it, getting it done, mindful of what I need to get done every single day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Consistency. I totally agree with you. That's one thing that I emphasized when I started my podcast in 2015, for sure. Lance, I want to ask you, if you wrote a book, what would that book be about? And what would the major message be to your reader? I was just thinking about that this morning. It's, it's crazy you just asked that. 
because I thought, man, I should really and, and the, the times I'm most reminded of, of the bo- uh, book I should be writing is when I am being a father. So taking my daughter to school this morning and I thought, man, back in the day when I was teaching, I, I teach a different course than I used to teach at University of Colorado Boulder, which, which is it works better for me, actually, because of the schedule. And that, that's the point of this story is I used to have to like really try to figure out how how do I get to see you Boulder by 8 a.m. with still having to drop the kids off and I can't drop them off as early as I need to. It was so stressful. And this is I used to be a single father in that way. It was very, very difficult. And I thought, man, I, I really don't want to let go or lose sight of all of those struggles that I had from from the starting the firm, the podcast, lecturing, all, all of those sort of things. They're so important. They're huge lessons. And I think they they demonstrate perseverance and courage and pushing a, a boulder up metaphorically up a mountain every single day. So I would write it about myself. And I, I thought, man, I, I, the only way I feel like I'm ever going to get this done is if I just hire somebody who can dictate the book. I can just dictate the book to them. And we work on it and collaborate together. And I have, I have a couple of contacts regarding that. Uh, I, I don't, I, th- I think, I think it would be something along the lines of, um, you know, pushing a boulder up a mountain every day or something like that could, would be sort of the title and the framework for it. And, and the whole concept would be, I'm a millennial and I, ha- I have, I'm a millennial who basically hires mostly millennials and now Gen Z. And there's a huge victimhood culture, uh, mentality right now that is permeable in the Western in Western societies, it's just permeated the whole thing. And I, ha- I hate it, I detest that because everybody's dealt a hand of cards. And yes, some people, I'm happy to acknowledge, some people are dealt a royal flush, no problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't call that privilege, I would just call that life. But some people like me are dealt a terrible hand of cards. But you're both playing, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're both playing poker, we're both playing the game of chess, we all have moves and I would want it to be a book that is, I'm not saying I'm Marcus Aurelius, but it would, I want it to be like Meditations mm-hmm. of Mar- Marcus Aurelius's book in that kind of way, like a modern version of it. That book changed my life. Two years ago, I read it, uh, Hiking Up and Down the Mountains. And what I loved about it was it just proved to me what stoicism really is. And stoicism is not Lance and Bruce just looking at each other and not saying anything. Stoicism is recognizing the hand you're dealt, accepting it, how do I play it properly? If you're somebody like me who has dealt a very poor set of, set of cards, poker cards, metaphorically, you have to play them perfectly almost. That's on you, right? That's on me. That's, that's like, that has nothing to do with, oh, well, I'm just throwing in the cards or stealing from the pile, you know, to get better cards. That's, that's what the book would be. So tell me about that deck of cards that you were dealt. We don't know much about that yet here on this interview. Tell us what some of those challenges were. Sure. I, uh, I Growing up in northwest of North Dakota, um, in between a cattle ranch and a sugar beet farm, a town of 500 people, closest town, bigger town to us, would have been 13 miles away. It had about 10,000 people when, when I was growing up. It was Williston, North Dakota. And... In that, in that, when you grow up, when you graduate, 
with a class of 20 and it's a K through 12 school and it's that rural, your options are almost non-existent. Like what are the options, especially in that area where prior to the oil, the oil boom came back eventually. But when I was growing up, every single public school teacher that I went that, that I can think of would say, you know, would poo poo the idea that the oil field would come back really pushing you to go to college and try to make something yourself in, the, in that sort of way. And in hindsight, I, I sort of disagree with them. I'm, I'm glad I got pushed in that sort of way. But but that's that's one of the big cards, right? It's like, well, it's a very desolate kind of place. Like, how do you get out of here? How do you even understand? Like, what kind of opportunities do you even see? Like, how does somebody like my mom or dad or my grandma take me out of this place and just show me parts of the world, even if it's over in Idaho with my aunt, who was very wealthy and got out of that place and seemed to be have no, you know, her, her anxiety and her fear about money and not having it was non-existent. Um, I mean, I, the other part, the other crucial part about where I grew up is it's a, uh, we were sort of a bastardized Indian reservation, meaning we weren't really federally recognized. We did have like socialized medicine and housing and all of that. And that's a card that was dealt, right? So what what happens when you put people in those kind of situations? Oftentimes, more often than not, even the statistics will show you this if you look it up, is that they become dependent on the system and they become complacent in it, right? Where, where's the fire? Like, where's the fire to get, to get out of there and make yourself better and just get off of that and be more self-sufficient on, on your own? So those are some of the cards. Those are like the negative ones, right? But the positive ones are is like I had the grandma who took me to see the rich on in the summers and I could see that, oh, there's like a whole different world out here that I didn't even understand. That's interesting. How, how do I like how do I position myself in that way? Having a mentor like Bruce, that's a big card. I talk to Bruce almost every week now. We actually reconvened about two, two years ago. His wife reached out to me and she said, uh, hey, Bruce, would really like to come down and visit you in Colorado sometime and. Um, he, he just, he talk, talks about you and thinks about you. And I actually, it was so crazy that she sent me that text on that day because I said, well, I don't know if you guys know this, but I really venerate Bruce often publicly. Like, I don't think you guys understand how big of a change he made in my life, how in one of the cards that he was, that I was dealt. And I sent, I sent her and him the, the interview where I was just gushing over Bruce and how big of a, how big of a deal it was for me. And I don't know if he cried, but I, I think he probably did that day because I was one of the very few guys, you know, we'd work with all these, all these guys uh, in construction labor. And I think I was one of the only ones that really took it seriously and listened and made a career out of it and got out of there. So th those are some of the cards, both good and bad that I'm, I'm very thankful for. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I know that one of your superpowers, it said in your bio, is your ability to write an email while eating an apple and listening to your favorite podcast. Have you always been able to multitask like that? Yeah, I, I definitely have ADHD, but uh, and and um, I'm, I just took like a test to see if I was on the autism spectrum, and I am slightly, just enough to like have sort of a superpower, right? Like I'm not not functional in society, but uh, I definitely push in those kind of directions in that way. So I think so. I mean, uh, for some reason I'm able to do it. And, but, but it's also, it's like a blessing and a curse, right? So I can't, I, I mentioned reading that Marcus Aurelius book. Mm -hmm. 
hiking through the mountains. And I, I'm one. I'm, I bet your listeners were like, "What do you mean? You just like reading?" No, no. The only way I can read a book is with audio, and I have to be walking around or doing something. So for me, it's a double-edged sword. And I finally honed in on that in my my early early twenties um, when we started the firm. And so far, it's good for me. But I just really have to be aware of it. Right. That makes sense, Lance. I always ask a question about bullying on my. Uh on my interviews. And uh, so I just wonder if you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference. Uh, I, uh, my biggest bully in my life would have been this guy named Jonas um, that I grew up with. And I, I, so when he would bully me, the one thing I would always keep in my mind and try to keep present and clear when interacting in that sort of way was, okay, keep this as fuel and keep, keep your mind focused on the prize. And the prize is the bullying isn't going to matter once I'm an adult and I'm successful and I'm crushing compared to this guy. And all of that has played out and been true. So I just used it as a fire in my belly that would then went into my brain and just kept me focused on I'm gonna, whatever I'm doing architecture, construction, podcasting, fishing, all, all of the things I do in my professional life and, and personal is I'm just going to keep my eye on the prize. Keep it there and don't try to fight this guy. Like it's not about fighting this guy. It, mentally, physically, nothing of that. It's about, it's about using that as fuel. Interesting. I wonder if uh, the work you do as a fisherman, is that mindful for you? It's the most it's the most mindful thing besides gardening. It's the most mindful thing. And, and I'm so thankful for it. It's just if there's anything that I could possibly do as somebody who's on the spectrum a little bit, has the ADHD that makes me only do one thing at one time. It is fishing. Right. I, like I'm not eating the apple and fishing. I'm just fishing. Mm-hmm. I am very focused on I'm literally I'll say it often in my videos on fishing with Lance at, at YouTube is you'll hear me say like. I'm even telling the audience, like, hey, guys and gals, I'm watching the line. Like, now watch how I watch the line. Because I'm just very focused on that line and what happens to the line. No matter what technique I'm using, it's almost always watch the line, watch the line, watch the line. Yeah, that sounds very mindful for sure. Yeah. As we move forward in the interview, Lance, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence for you? Uh, Kanye West, 100%. One of his favorite quotes, I got to say it is, having money isn't everything, but not having it is. When he said it in that way, I was like, boy, that's me. Boy, that's me. Because it's not about possessions. Like I'm sitting in... Our office that we designed, built, and developed, that we own, right next to two other rental properties that I own, five miles away from the million-dollar house that my wife and I live in, and all sitting on a bunch of companies, and we're doing really well. But it's about the freedom from anxiety of not having the money. Right. Interesting. Tell us how mindfulness has affected your emotions. And maybe you've kind of talked about that quite a bit, but if you could sum it up. I have been, uh, there's a, a gal that I had on my podcast a while ago, and she wrote this book, and it was called Holding the Calm. And I thought she was so intoxicating in a, such a good way with what she was saying. I was like, I need to read this book. And I literally bought it mid-interview. So 
I just read it about three or four weeks ago. And that's my new goal. I, f- I believe that you have four lives. In your 20, from one to 20, you got life one. 20 to 40, you got life two. 40 to 60, you got life three. 60 to 80, that's your last one. Some people live 80 to 100, but most of us are within that spectrum. So I'm like, oh, I'm 40. I'm on my third life now. It's time to like fully grow up and become that kind of stoic in the sense of I'm the calm. I'm the leader that solves the problems by being calm while everybody else is crazy. That's really interesting. Yeah. So is there a book besides that that you would recommend or is holding the calm the book that you would recommend for uh, our listeners? I would recommend Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, number one. Right. Uh, and then if there's if they if somebody else has read that, the second book I would recommend is uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. We actually I'm actually buying 15 copies of that for the studio, the architecture student students that I'm teaching. I have a studio of 15 up in North Dakota State in Fargo, and that's going to be their gift at the end of the semester next week. Oh, that's fantastic. I want to ask you about breathing. Do you have any comments, thoughts, insights about breathing? Yes. What I used to, I used to, when I woke up, I would try to say, thank you, God, after that first breath every single day. I've been, I haven't been doing that as much and I need to get back to that, but I want to just start there in that, in that answer is like, it's that important, right? Like that first breath, you're like, I'm alive. Thank you, God. What it's now become for me is when I'm hiking up and down the mountains and recently I've been on some crazy ones, like 17 miles round trip just to go catch fish all the way up at 11,000 feet in the air in the continental divide. Two week, uh, last week it was 14 miles round trip, but just a very strenuous physical activity in that way. I was... This summer, my my daughter went on one of these hikes with me. It actually was not that hard. This one was only like three miles or something, but for her, it was very hard. And I'm I'm beating her, my my cameraman Bill, up the up the mountain, super steep. It's probably like a fifty percent grade. And I'm I take a break, and I'm my I'm like my back is resting up against the mountainside. I'm sweaty, just drenched in sweat, and I'm breathing super hard but I'm smiling and Kaya's Kaya comes up to me and she's like, I, I hate being all wet. I'm all tired. She's out of breath. And she goes, why are you smiling? I go, isn't this awesome? Don't you just feel alive right now? Like think about how alive you feel right now, Kaya. This is perfect. You know, you're alive. There's no doubt you're alive. That's what breathing means to me right now. Yeah. I love that explanation. That's, that's really awesome. Are there any apps that you would recommend? Uh, well, if you're a Catholic or a person of prayer like me, I use the Hollow app every single day um, on, on my just just in my life. Uh, that's probably the one I use the most, honestly, in terms of just personal growth. Um, and then there's been I think it's called Headspace. Yes, that's where I learned how to meditate. That'd be the second one. I, I recommend that to people for learning how to meditate and Again, kind of like reading the Marcus Aurelius book, it proved to me, I was like, oh, meditation is not about not thinking. Meditation is about, is about the way I learned it through that, that app was, is like, you are just recognizing like e- even the positive and the negative, but a lot of negative stuff. 
you're, you're recognizing it and then it goes away, meaning it doesn't linger in your brain like you have addressed it in that way. And it just helps you become a better stoic and navigate a very chaotic world. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that very much so. As we wrap up the interview, Lance, I want to ask you if you have any final words of advice for our listeners. If you are, every entrepreneur is scared when they start out doing anything on their own. And that's normal. So the, the biggest thing I think the myth that I want people to understand is, is that you don't have to do it all. Like the best entrepreneurs like Elon Musk, they're actually more better at delegating than they are maybe even at the math behind all the rockets and everything like that. So if you are fearful, just know that what the biggest thing you need to overcome is your fear of delegating and trusting people. Sure, you have to go through the process of interviewing them and making sure you can trust them and everything like that. But if you're paralyzed about make, finally making that leap and making something of yourself instead of just being a cog in the machine and the corporate machine and you want to go out there and find some freedom like me, freedom from anxiety of money, just doing what you want every day mostly as a business person, you just got to take the leap and uh, get over that get over that fear. Yeah, good advice. Lance, it's been great getting to know you. Fantastic having you on the Mindfulness Mode podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Bruce, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Bye now. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for joining me again today. Always a pleasure to have you with me. You know what? The more you can improve your writing, the better it is. And I do quite a bit of writing. Maybe you do too. And don't you want to compose bold, clear, mistake-free writing? Well, you can do that with the help of an app. And that app is called Grammarly. Maybe you've heard of it before. If you're like me, you want your sentences and your grammar to be the best they can possibly be when you're writing. And Grammarly gives you advice as you go. And you can get started with Grammarly for free. You can get suggestions while you write in your desktop applications and sites across the web as you move between apps, social media, documents, messages, and emails. You can use my affiliate link and get going right away for free. Here's the link, mindfulnessmode.com slash Grammarly. And that's G-R-A-M-M-A-R. L Y. So I hope you check it out. And with that, take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.